Hello everyone! Welcome back to Historical Friction, a podcast about retelling the past and reframing the present through pop culture and fiction. I am Helen and in this episode you'll hear me and Alice discussing the 2008 film Affinity. Affinity is an adaptation of Sarah Waters' significant neo-Victorian novel of the same name from 1999. It's part of a genre we affectionately call murder girls, as we wonder why women criminals are such a staple of fiction set in the 19th century. Because Affinity tells a queer narrative about the relationship between a wealthy prison visitor and an imprisoned psychic medium, this episode does come with a warning. For depictions of historic homophobia, mentions of sexual assault, and discussions of injustice in women's prisons. As always, you can find us on Twitter, at History Friction. Our podcast is also on Patreon, where you can subscribe to receive our monthly digests. On there, we share our recent favourites, we give sneak peeks of future episodes, and we expand upon the types of conversation you hear on the show. If you sign up now, you'll have access to the May Digest, and have the jump on the upcoming June Digest as well. If it sweetens the deal, there is also the occasional pet picture. Our Patreon enables us to improve the podcast and keep bringing you better content, and we're so thankful to all our patrons for your support. If you're enjoying Historical Friction, we'd love for you to help us out by rating or reviewing the podcast, or just recommending us to your pals. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. Okay. Um, so we watched the 2008 adaptation of Affinity, which is by Sarah Waters. Uh, it's her second book. It's actually the first Sarah Waters that I ever read. So this was my introduction to kind of her particular historical queer genre. Um, I wouldn't say it's necessarily her best. I think that it, it has moments of the kind of spooky suspensefulness that she's so good at, but it's not as kind of fun and rollicking as obviously Tipping the Velvet is, and it's not quite as kind of smart and mindfucky as Fingersmith. Very much so. It's very much like, this is the queer yearning edition of Sarah Waters. Yes, definitely. So the kind of cause of all of this yearning is the the book centres on the uh, characters of Margaret Pryor and Selina Dawes. Dawes is a disgraced spirit medium in Millbank Prison for fraud and assault, and Margaret is a lady visitor who is coming to spend time with the prisoners and sort of be a moral guide. And this is a thing that, that people would do. And, and it's as much for the sort of moral improvement of the visitors as it is for the actual prisoners And to themselves. alleviate the middle class boredom of uh, ladies that have nothing better to do. Yeah, which is, I mean, a fascinating phenomenon in and of itself, right? That That, that this is a penal system that kind of is very much emphasizing the idea of like boredom and emptiness as part of your punishment and yet you are then an activity for the the ladies of Chelsea to go and do is a really interesting kind of aspect of this history that I think often gets lost. Yeah definitely and I think in the film adaptation in particular um, the sort of sense that the prison Millbank prison is a character within this story and is sort of like this living, breathing, malevolent entity that is leeching the life force from all the women that that live within it is something that is very, very prevalent in the original book. Um, It's kind of like the lead out 
opener of the book um and it is 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 with us throughout um you get little flashes of it in this film i think but it's not really there and it's a shame because like millbank has such an interesting history and like thinking about the kind of like carceral systems which are all in the background of this film they never quite come to the fore but it's a fascinating place um it was originally the site was um, intended by Jeremy Bentham himself to be a panopticon. And even though those plans were scrapped in 1812, when you actually like look at the, the layout of Millbank Prison, they really didn't deviate from that sort of original intention very, very far. It's this kind of strange hexagonal flower petal design when viewed from above. And it's sort of was set up according to something which was called the separate system, which basically um, entailed keeping complete surveillance on the prisoner while simultaneously keeping them completely separate from each other, according to the belief that um, human influences were the cause of these women's criminality. And so they were just going to keep them completely separate from everyone else, even up to the point of forcing them to wear masks so that they couldn't read each other's facial expressions. Which I didn't know about, and which is such a kind of bizarre and, like, the cruelty is the point kind of twist on this whole history, the idea that that you have to wear a mask so you can't even see other people's faces. Um, For those who don't know that much about the kind of concept of the panopticon, it's this idea that Bentham has, which is essentially that that prisons should be built as a kind of ring and the cells face inwards and in the centre is a guard tower. So from the tower, the guard can see into all of the cells, but the prisoners don't know if they're being watched. So it's this really intense idea of surveillance and the kind of core principle of it is that you should be watched at all times and you should behave as if you're being watched at all times, even if you don't know that. So... It's something that has like a lot of kind of cultural power now in terms of the way that we think about surveillance and control. And I think that the fact that Milbank has this history is really interesting and really important to the way that the book functions and isn't is one of the things that's missing from from the film adaptation is that you don't really have this kind of sense of overwhelming threat and surveillance that you really get from the book. Absolutely. And they kind of try to run in, dare I say, a slightly half-acid way. Um, but they try to run with the idea that all of the women within this film are kind of living in separate prisons of their own. So you have Margaret, who is this incredibly middle-class, wealthy character who whose father has just died and she is in line to inherit a great deal of wealth, but she's under pressure to get married. She can't express her queer sexuality. She's um, being drugged and gaslit by her mother with these constant um, application of chloral cocktails. And the film really, really tries to make the point that she is a prisoner within her own life, which would come across as more true if it didn't sort of juxtapose it with these incredibly voyeuristic imagery of sort of naked, shivering women being um, hosed down and having their hair cut with um, pinking shears or whatever it was that they used. Yeah, and also if we didn't then get all these shots of Margaret just like walking to the prison and wandering around and that sort of thing. And that's something that... 
I think, you know, for plot reasons, you have to show her getting around. But um, it doesn't really kind of chime with the way that she's meant to feel so kind of claustrophobic mm. and trapped. So Margaret becomes a lady visitor. She starts visiting the prison and in the book she visits other prisoners as well we're mainly talking about the film mostly because neither of us have had time to reread the book fully but we have both read it at various points and so we're obviously going to keep we'll referring kick to back it. at some point and, so, and do a deep dive on the book as well but you're getting the film today yeah. because the film is more roastable <laughs> yes <laughs> so so in the book she visits other prisoners as well and you have um, much more of a sense of kind of relationships between her and the guards, the wardens, the, the the women that work in the prison too. And there's a really strong sense that this kind of space of Millbank is kind of overpowering and controlling all of them, no matter how they come in there, that once you enter the building, it kind of seeps mm. into you. So within her visits, she becomes more and more obsessed with Selena Dawes and they start to have this very intense kind of push and pull relationship where it seems that Dawes is just kind of mesmerizing and I'm using that word quite knowingly she is she is a spiritualist she has these kind of mesmerizing powers but that she is also you never really know what she's getting out of the relationship and eventually it becomes clear that she's using Margaret to escape from the prison and the climax of both the book and the film is is the moment that Selena manages to escape and you kind of all the pieces fall into place and you realize that she's been playing Margaret the whole time. But the film really goes for the fact that this is a love story in a way that I did not particularly enjoy. Well, it's, it's interesting because like on the basis of the plot it's a love story with multiple different participants like multiple different actions it's like not even a love triangle it's like a love hexagon it's it's the same shape as the prison yeah. in a way because margaret Ooh. is in love with her ex who has married her brother and has been cut off from uh this woman who is called helen uh a namesake that has shamed me in this episode uh and <laughs> is sort of on the rebound and, and looking for um, you know, something to occupy her time when she first meets Selena and develops this new obsession with her. Um, but Selena, as it turns out, is um, in this exploitative relationship with a woman named Ruth Vigers, um, who has been uh, cross-dressing to play her spiritual um, spirit guide, Peter Quick. This kind of malevolent mysterious figure that looms large over the majority of the film so this is the big twist spoilers yeah yeah spoilers <laughs> obviously um but yes peter quick is the spirit that selena manifests um he's the one that she uses to communicate with the spirit world and it's vigas ruth um sort of in in the film, she's wearing a weird stick-on moustache, but somehow still like a corset and women's underwear while she's doing this. Um, and between the two of them, they are then seducing, assaulting, molesting in various ways, gullible young women. Um, it's much more ambiguous in the book that, that the women are getting something out of this as well. You know, they're getting this kind of implied liberation and, and health-giving properties that presumably comes from having sex. <laughs> But in the film, it's not quite It as turns clear. out that um, spiritual ecstasy and revelation is mostly just fingering. 
Yeah. <laughs> Which uh, some of us could have told you. I, I, I do remember from the book, there's this real like obsessive emphasis on the casts of Peter Quick's hands. So the cast of Ruth Vigas's hands. And there's a lot about like these very powerful rough hands. And it's like, so spiritualism is when you and your girlfriend unwillingly finger people <laughs> like, is that what's going on here yes and they, they do uh, a very nice knowing nod to this in the film i think with this kind of like nudge nudge wink wink aside they see this cast supposedly taken from the spirit peter quick and they say all oh, the young ladies are very interested in this piece uh which i thought was uh <laughs> appropriately um carry on up the spiritual realm of them (laughs) yeah you know in i i really do think that the historical romance trope of like lingering shots of hands is overdone now i'm sick of it you've had it it's over um but i do wish in this case that there had been more sort of hand time because i think that could have added something that was lacking <laughs> from this film. It's 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 weird. You have a couple of flashbacks that show um, Margaret and Helen. You have a couple of flashbacks that show Selena and Ruth and the kind of young women that they are coercing. But you really don't actually have much kind of like sexual mm. frisson anywhere. Um, Selena repeatedly kisses Margaret's hands. That's something. But there could have been a lot more sort of like spooky sexual tension yeah i agree and i do wonder how much of that has to do with um the direction and the sort of like chemistry building and and intimacy coaching between the actors because it's this sort of slightly chaste and sexless depiction of uh, queer relationships that i don't really associate with sarah waters and the way she kind of builds up the inner lives of her characters like as we've sort of we're talking about affinity is not the most um sexual or sort of intimate in that way uh compared to some of the other novels uh but yes it's very it's a coldness about it i think there's a coldness between Mm. margaret and selena even as they're sort of expressing these tremulous declarations of love and 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 their affinity, which is the sort of titular concept, this idea that they are two halves of the same soul. Completely. And I think that's, I mean, one of the things that I love most about Sarah Waters is that she's writing historical fiction that is very atmospheric, very well researched, and also really horny. Like, Tipping the Velvet is a fundamentally very horny book. I think Fingersmith has moments of, again, this really like intense sexuality to it that I very much appreciate and that is often missing, especially from representations of queer women in like literary fiction. Affinity is the least horny, but even within that, you have this kind of displaced horniness. I'm getting like semantic saturation with horny now (laughs) as a word, and I feel ridiculous that I keep saying it, but you do get this kind of like displaced Mm. desire from Margaret, that she is clearly expressing sexual attraction and romantic attraction towards Selina, but she doesn't know how to handle that. And so she kind of is displacing it onto this idea of their kind of spiritual Mm. connection. And actually, like, what she's trying to describe is lust, and she's sort of dancing around it in a really interesting way. But you don't even get that kind of sense of displacement from the film. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, actually, because one of the things that I really, like, dig about this film 
is the way they show people trying to connect with the spirit world, which is something intangible and separate and divided from us, you know, on the metaphysical realm. And they connect with it through things which are very much of the physical realm. And, and this is part of the sort of spiritual mediumship grift. You get these people who are using um, cold reading techniques and confidence trickery and various new forms of material culture like the hand cast that we were talking about and like photography mm. um, and tricks involving knots and tricks involving little flowers showing up in surprising places and locks of hair that seem to present themselves uh, in sort of impossible Mm. ways and you were talking about displacement there and it's really interesting because that is also kind of how Margaret is expressing her lust for Selena um, is through these sort of various little artifacts that pass between them so Selena finds a way to smuggle Margaret some flowers and there's lots of shots of Margaret sort of pressing her whole face into these orange blossoms and then Mm. you know the next um, escalation in the plot where Margaret really starts to believe in the spiritualist angle is when she finds Selena's massive braid of beautiful pre-Raphaelite style hair hidden under her pillow and she smells it and she touches it to her cheek and so this kind of like queer lustful displacement is is very much sort of mimicking the the displacement of of all these people who are trying to connect with the metaphysical realm through stuff so that's a really little fun connection yeah completely and i mean i think that's something that is so evocative and interesting in the book as well is that you have this kind of like desire for things and and that that Margaret has this very kind of courtly obsession and I'm using that in the sense of the sort of historical like collecting and yearning Mm. sense um that she wants things that Selena has touched she wants to kind of feel her presence and hold her but not her body her kind Mm -hmm. of trace which is so spiritual right this whole idea that you can feel these echoes of things and these kind of spiritual affinities is very 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 (laughs) gay But apparently in this film, the limit of queerness is that sometimes you make out with your brother's wife on a boat. Yes, sometimes you do very, very tentative closed-lipped kisses on a boat. (laughs) That's it. That's it. That's all there is. And that, like, lack of... (sighs) This is kind of tricky to phrase. I was grateful that this film is gay. I'm grateful that it shows that both Selena and Margaret are like sexually attracted and romantically attracted to other women. I'm glad that they didn't just cut that because there are definitely ways that you could adapt this book if you took a very kind of face value reading of the yearning in it, that if you're not reading it as a queer text, you're, you, you are able to kind of miss the queerness of it if you are an idiot or not particularly interested. Um, and so there are definitely ways that you could have adapted this as a kind of like completely sexless mm. obsession. However, that did also then just make me more annoyed that it's like, it's not horny. There's no actual sexual desire to this yearning. And you lose a lot of the kind of like actual compelling chemistry between the two of them. The fact that 
one of the things that Margaret's attracted to about Selena is the fact that Selena is very like direct and very intense with her and kind of quite like frank and aggressive towards her at times. And there's this really interesting kind of sexual dynamic between the two of them that that Margaret doesn't like really know how to deal with the fact that she's being kind of verbally topped by a spiritual medium. <laughs> verbally topped by a spiritual medium. I, that's on a, a dodgy website somewhere for sure. But it's kind of interesting actually because like this is not the first example. Margaret and Selena are not the first example of Selena doing this kind of verbal topping because right. there's a lot of lonely mostly women in this film and in this book and because Selena as we discover in the course of the story is such a talented cold reader and has this ability to get to the heart of people's desires people's anxieties etc she has this ingratiating way of sort of finagling her way into all of these people's lives Um, so it's like all these people who go to a spirit medium, they're longing for love and connection. Um, So like you have Margaret beset by various sad lesbian longings. You have Mrs. Mm. Mrs. Jelf, who is one of the uh, wardens who aids Selina. And the way that she's kind of brought round to this um, prison break plan is that Selina gives the impression that she's communicating with Mrs. Jelf's dead son. Um, and you have Mrs. Brink, who's like this lonely old woman who's who's just kind of desperate for a living doll that she can display in her house and she brushes Selena's hair. And, and it's interesting, Selena is seen as a very sympathetic character in the framing of the film um, and it doesn't quite hit on all of the different ways in which she's really manipulating these lonely, lonely people. Yeah. And you do get this like weird little glimpse at the end of her and Ruth Figers, and Ruth has this line of like, remember whose girl you are, which is actually like the last, really right at the end of the book as well. Um, but it sort of gives this this get out for the idea that like, well, Selena's not actually that bad. She was also being manipulated. And like, it's a lot more complicated mm. than that. I think also the fact that the film shows Margaret jumping into the river. So... The book includes several references to the fact that Margaret has had sort of episodes of like severe mental illness in the past. There are references to the fact that she is sort of like, and she says that she's nearly taken by morphine. And there's this question over whether it's a sort of deliberate or accidental overdose. And she's um, clearly has this history of drug use uh, in the wake of her father's death and things like that. She's on this coral the whole way through and it puts her in this really kind of fuzzy and disoriented state. And you have these scenes where she is clearly like relying on these substances and they are putting her in a kind of place of like insulation and protection. Um, but they're also causing her to be vulnerable to manipulation from all these people around her and Selena. And there's a lot to talk about there. The book does not tell you in literal words that she drowns herself in the Thames. But it's very much there. Like that is the kind of consequence at the end of the book is that is that Margaret is going to either attempt or actually kill herself. And they show that in the film. They actually show it right at the beginning. You have this woman falling through the water while the opening credits play and you only realise at the end that it's Margaret. 
But then they also show this kind of weird fantasy sort of thing where Selena jumps into the water and is there with mm. her. And it's tricky because suddenly when you include that, you're adding to this idea that like, okay, no, this is a love story. Selena does love Margaret, but she's being manipulated by Ruth. And that's not really... The groundwork for that is not solid. And in the final moments, it also adds this ambiguity about whether the spiritualism is a reality. Because what works so well about the book is that you're carried along with it, almost wanting to believe in the spiritualism until you reach the twist at the end and it's revealed to you exactly how this has all been engineered in a very false way. Um, But in the film, there's this sort of sense of the affinity being severed in which Selina appears to feel the moment that Margaret throws herself into the water um, and she sort of clutches her chest and and trembles and this is interspersed with this image of them together in the water in the sense that a part of Mm. Selina has died and she's felt it in that moment Um, and it's a bit of a cop-out isn't it let's be honest yeah. Kind of doesn't work with the, yeah, the cynicism, I... um, <laughs> that brilliant, bleak, beautiful cynicism of the, the ultimate end of Margaret's life. Completely, completely. And like so much of Margaret's character is around the fact that she, you know, she is kind of very much molded by these people around her, right? She's talking about the fact that she was like devoted to her father and she was always assisting her father. And now in his absence, she's kind of lost. And a lot of the things that she's going through are clearly to do with this kind of like loss of identity. She's also reeling from the loss of Helen. She's in this place of kind of uncertainty and and, and alienation there. And so Selena gives her something to kind of cling on to. And, you know, one of the things that the book does really well is that because you only see things through Margaret's eyes, you want to believe with her. She's quite cynical at first, but then she bec- she is convinced and you let yourself be convinced along with her. It's interspersed with these sort of flashback diary entries of Selena's life before, and the film does that as literal flashbacks. But because you are not seeing solely through Margaret's eyes in the film, it's much more like, well, she's an idiot, right? You don't have the same kind of desire for her to be proved right, I think. And I don't know how you actually do this. Like, I don't know how you adapt this book in a way that is true to its kind of material and structure. The attempt that was made was that they used a lot of monologuing, which is lifted directly from Margaret's diary. So you have these sort of montage scenes of her walking the streets and walking the corridors of the prison and staring out of her window whilst excerpts from her own diary play in the background and that sort of thing to me it reads very flat and I think it can be effective if it's used sparingly and effectively but it it just seems a little soft in terms of really translating that that sense of the character's inner life onto the screen I don't think it really works in that sense yeah completely I think it is also it's because it's used quite inconsistently. I I don't know. I just I just didn't love it. Um, I don't like a voiceover. Mm. Generally speaking, that's like a personal preference. I think that one of the things that makes this book so interesting is that you do have kind of 
you you are reading Margaret being seduced and it's really hard to adapt that. I kind of wish that I don't know. I the, and this is an imperfect solution, but I wish that there was more of a sense of like the parallel between how Margaret sees things and how things really are. And I don't know how you do that in an effective way, short of doing like the full Rashomon treatment. But I would like, I would have liked more of this kind of tension between like what she's seeing and what she wants mm. to believe in and the reality of it. Because I think that the attempts to do that with the kind of monologues and the diary were, were inconsistent and kind of incomplete. Mm. And it, it frustrated me because it means that you lose this kind of really interesting dilemma at the heart of the book, which is that Margaret kind of knows that she's being seduced. Yeah. And and Margaret, I think, is a very... Na- she's a naive character who thinks that she is a cynical, intelligent character. And Selina is a cynical, intelligent character who's playing the character of someone very naive and innocent and it's these two kind of worlds in collision within this this very heightened and and malevolent space and yeah I think the kind of the idea of emphasizing these two worlds the very kind of heightened high Chelsea society versus the equally heightened but black and grimy and bleak Millbank prison could have sort of worked into that you know exteriorizing some of that inner life stuff that you have to show in pictures on the screen because you can't experience it in prose anymore Mm. yeah completely i i want to talk a little bit about the way that the prison is represented we've talked about the kind of panopticon context one of the things that this film falls back on, which is such a classic, is to show these kind of moments of violation, right? So you have the hair cutting um, of women arriving in the prison, you have a shower scene, which is just so nasty, um, and doesn't really do much apart from kind of remind us that we are meant to be in a kind of place of misery. I then, I found it interesting that, that that sort of is presented as a really immediate kind of violation, but you don't necessarily get the same sense of kind of violence from the scene where Margaret is taken to essentially just look through the belongings of all of these women, which is such a kind of, it's presented as really like really invasive and really manipulative and kind of cruel in the book. And it's sort of halfway there in the film, but it doesn't have the same intensity Mm. to it. I think in a strange sort of way, it, it kind of comes back to that that method that the film uses for depicting material culture as something spiritual. I think strangely in that scene, there is a reverence about how they comb through those people's items and, and show through the things a kind of empathy and almost a tenderness, um, which is, is not very much aligned with the book where there's sort of, you know, a brutal invasive quality to to the way they they penetrate these women's lives and and make mockery of them yeah and i mm, it's interesting that 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 kind of tension within the book is so very much about like margaret is essentially starting to 
hallucinate that she is in Milbank, right? She has these kind of recurring auditory hallucinations of the bells of the prison. She has these moments where she convinces herself that she can hear the sounds of the prison while she's at, at home. And she's kind of having this really intense, again, kind of displaced experience. And the scenes where she is in the prison, particularly where she's seeing like the women's clothes and the, their belongings, she is projecting herself onto that in a really intense way. And the film doesn't carry that across. And and yeah, it, it's presented as a much more kind of tender and reverent thing of like, oh, look at their belongings, how sad, rather than the kind of really violating um, experience that, that Margaret is kind of actually participating in. Which then means that at the end, when you realise that her stuff has been ransacked, by Ruth and Selina on their way to flee the country. You don't have the same kind of like affinity echoing between mm. these scenes. Yes, that's that's I did actually notice like how flat that ransacking reads on the screen. Like it's just a sort of pile of yeah. crumpled clothes, but it's supposed to be this ultimate betrayal. Um and that doesn't necessarily quite track unfortunately um, yeah. I was also this is distracting me but I was very uh, distracted by the fact that um, there's a scene in a dressmaker where she requests three dresses to be made in 24 hours and the, the dressmaker is like oh we can God. do that for you miss I'm like honey no, no. problem <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's yeah I mean I guess this is the the problem with a you know a two-hour film one of the things that's really effective in the book is this kind of slow burn and this this kind of mounting tension and mounting desire and you know as you're reading it that something terrible is going to happen but you don't know what it is and you want them to get away and you want to believe that Selena is actually like going to be spirited away and they're going to escape to Italy and it's all going to be perfect and you know that's not going to happen but you find yourself wishing for it until like the last page and you don't get that kind of mounting tension on, on on film. You certainly don't get it in a two-hour film. And so then when there are these things of like, oh, and yes, by the way, <laughs> uh, we'll just knock out three dresses for you. It's a bit like, oh, yeah, of course, time yeah. isn't real. We, we're, we are going off to Italy in your dreams. I also, though, that dressmaker scene, I might be completely wrong about this, but she pushes past a woman when she's going down the stairs um, and I thought for a moment that the woman that she pushed past might have been Sarah Waters having a cameo. Really? I don't know. It just looked a bit <sighs> like her in that moment. And and I just, I had this thought of like, is that <laughs> possibly? Um, I might be completely wrong. I would love to know if this is actually the case or not. Um, I don't know. I, 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 I hope that it is. I find I that very so funny. Too. But I love time, those types of author cameos. They make me really happy. Just Anything so happy. where I can do just... a little bit of noticing and go, oh, oh, I notice you. That that makes me really happy. I love that so, so much. So, yes. Yeah, so I think that might have been a cameo, but I'm open to correction. Um, yeah. So you have this scene and in the book, what Mar- Margaret finds Ruth's and uh, Selena's clothes literally like tangled together that it looks like they've thrown them off, presumably to have sex, and they've kind of like knotted into each other so she can't actually separate the clothes out. And you don't get that in the film, obviously, but you also don't get the sense that she has been violated by the fact that Ruth has been reading her diary. Ruth has been kind of going through all of her things and has taken 
all of this stuff. Has stolen her locket and, and passed off her former lover's yeah. hair as Mrs. Jelf's little boy's hair. And... Yeah, and and so you don't really get that kind of sense of, of invasion. Um, but the film introduces a character that's not in the book, the fucking Theophilus. Well, it wouldn't be a 19th century adaptation without an attempted rape scene, would it? Oh my god. So... So in the film, there is this man called Theophilus who wants to carry on Margaret's father's work and finish the great historical text that he was working on and he wants to marry Margaret. And so there is this awful, awful scene of attempted rape where Theophilus is essentially saying, like, let me take the place of your father. Yeah. And it's just, it's just grim. It's rather icky, to say the least, um, and not a necessary inclusion by any means, but it was as if they were pulling out all the stops to emphasise that Margaret is queer, Margaret is oppressed, Margaret can't live her life in the way that she would prefer to live it. So they shoehorned this addition in just to really drive the point home as forcefully as possible. Yeah, and it's just... It's just, it's it's so nasty. The one thing that it kind of allows is for Ruth Figers to come in and, and save Margaret by interrupting them and saying the actually kind of hilarious out-of-context line, like, can't you tell when a woman's not interested <laughs> in you? <laughs> which which out-of-context is very funny, but in the context of the, of the scene is just so nasty and so grim. Especially then when you realise that Margaret and Selina have been kind of performing... I don't even know what word to use to describe what's going on here because there is clearly a level of consent from some of the women who they are kind of acting on as spiritual, as, as medium and spirit. But the incident that leads to Selina being in prison is much, much more like mm-hmm. an attempted rape. Mm-hmm. And it's complicated... Uh, the question of how much any of the women are consenting because they don't know that Peter Quick is not a spirit. They don't know that actually it's Ruth. But so there is there is a level of kind of like coercion and and violation in all of these encounters. But the the very violent attempted rape of this woman that that then leads to Mrs. Brink's death, Selena's uh, incarceration, all of that. When you contrast that to the scene where Ruth saves the day, is just it's it's really knotty and not in a kind of narratively interesting way, just in a way of like, oh, I hate all of this. Mm. Yes, I think the way it's been handled is clumsy to say the least. They're trying to set up problems for which there's no solution, because it's it's this mm. question of how do you experience spiritualism? It's been framed by these con artists as a range of murmurs, light touches and gasps, which in the positive framing of that sort of uninformed consent, let's call it, is sort of sinks into a seduction. But in the instance Mm. where um, the young girl is frightened and afraid of these spiritual experiences, heavy air quotes, it transmogrifies into something very different, which is really this this attempted sexual assault. 
Uh, and it, as you say, it just sort of sets up these really naughty problems of, to some degree, this is framed as acceptable because it was actually a woman doing it. In the same sort of way of like, this would be acceptable for me to be touched because it's a spirit. It's a metaphysical yeah. man and not an actual man. Well, everyone knows it doesn't count as sex unless there's a penis, <laughs> right? So it's fine. And so there's this, there is this really weird kind of, and again, again, I think this comes back to the sort of like the sexlessness of this kind of mm. queer desire within the film is that you have no sense in that scene of what kind of that sexual encounter might involve. You have these kind of like hints of it, but there's no really clear kind of there's no clear sense of what might happen, what is going to happen. Because Ruth has her moustache ripped off and suddenly she's very much a woman. And the kind of sexual threat of Peter Quick is immediately uncut by the fact that she's there, like, fully corseted in a nightdress with her hair down. There's a ridiculousness to it as well, I think. This kind of, like, sense of gender nonconformity in this way that she's framed as being caught in the act sort of simultaneously wearing both mm -hmm. women's and men's clothes with this look on her face of right. all this power that she held when she was being the character of Peter Quick um, intimidating and controlling and forceful it's all taken away when it's sort of revealed that she has this like feminine underpinning literal corseted underpinning underneath yeah and I mean I think there's some interesting kind of there's a lot to think about there in the way that sexual sexuality is connected to ideas of criminality historically. But I think we need to talk about that more specifically. I think there's something really interesting in the way that Ruth is not threatening as a woman who has sex with women. She's threatening as a woman who sometimes seems to be a man. And I think that there's some tangledness to the way that the book and the film deal with that kind of particular aspect of gender i want to also be very clear that this was made in what 2008 the book is from like 19 1999 1999 right so this is like we're, we're talking about quite mm. some time ago and the context of it is not the current context but i can't help but watch this in light of the way that kind of sexual threat is presented through Ruth's gender mm, flexibility. Yes, the the idea of someone gender non-conforming or otherwise androgynous is this threatening, malevolent, and and actually otherworldly thing that's uh, that's yeah. <laughs> invading your house and pretending to be one thing whilst it's actually another, which she actually does twice. You know masquerading as as a servant for margaret and then you know masquerading as a spirit guide for in, in mrs brink's house mm, yeah completely um yeah you touched on it there but i think it's kind of interesting to bring it up in this kind of context of 19th century um queer themed murderous women which is, yes. this is sort of not the first time that we've we've looked at this because we also talked about it with Lizzie. But I do, I'm very interested in what the fascination is with pairing up themes of Victorian criminality and, and female murderers or female criminals, 
criminals with them being lesbians and queer women. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's something, there's def, there's something, and I, I don't want to say it's Victorian because this is not actually a strictly Victorian thing. It, it's a, in a mod, the modern interpretation of Victorianism is very much this idea that like, oh yes, criminality and sexuality are both deviant. And so therefore they must be essentially the same. And I think that's a lot of kind of the modern perspective looking back. I I don't know. Is there, at the time that Affinity is set, at the time that Lizzie is set, what is the kind of cultural linkage between sexuality and criminality? Well, something that's very interesting to me is that lesbianism and, and queer women were not culturally and socially punished specifically within mm. the carceral systems in quite the same way um which is super interesting in the context of how we're seeing all these violent and imprisoned women showing up in these neo-victorian fictions um because yeah. the the majority of the sort of criminalization of uh queer sexualities was very much um emphasized on on men and the idea of um the the quote sodomite um sort of the classic case that that we think of as someone like Oscar Wilde um who was pilloried for his sexuality and um you know imprisoned had his life ruined his reputation ruined which is not to say that queer women were not also stigmatized and that was an ever increasing process as the century progressed like by the sort of 1890s into the 1900s this was something that was being talked about more and more but there is a sense in which women's sexualities are discounted in general in a lot of the sort of theory of sexuality and so the very idea that women could kiss each other could share a bed could be lifelong living companions was Mm. a more acceptable way of of framing their lifestyles and this is why you get all these kind of strange um attitudes about historical women who were potentially queer where people will say oh they were just very good friends or they were lady companions because that was actually an acceptable way to live your life and there was not as much scrutiny placed on the potential sexual conduct between women who lived together and women who were very closely mm. intimate as it would have been um, in the case of men and it does kind of come back to that thing of like what is the root cause of deviant behavior it is a penis mm. yeah I on these kind of subjects um, there's a really interesting book called uh, Inseparable by Emma Donoghue which is about like the history of kind of queer women in literature in particular so she essentially traces the representation of feminine desire um and it's really interesting and it looks at all of the kind of like more euphemistic stuff as well as the kind of more outright um like expressions of desire in literature and that's very interesting if you want to understand the kind of historical interpretation of sexuality at different points in time because she does go through literature but she takes it not through the era that's being represented but the era in which these things are actually written um and i think that's a just a kind of fun and worthwhile thing to explore um 
more generally. There's also obviously so much on the history of sexuality that we can't even begin to get into, but um, I'll probably put some links in the notes and there is always the absolutely brilliant Bad Gays um, podcast and now book that deals with a lot of these kind of questions as well. Absolutely. And it's really worth like thinking about these things, like not just in the context of like the historical understanding of it, but also how we now have kind of reframed and recontextualized that history to kind of reflect our own narratives. It's a very interesting uh, thing to think about. Yeah, I've been reading, um, I read recently a book that has just come out called When Women Kill, that is uh, about the history of four murders that took place in Chile in the 20th century. And it's about these kind of true crimes, but it's very much focused on the way that they were represented Mm. in the media. And one of the things that the author does in that is talk about the way that these crimes had to be constructed in order to prevent kind of femininity being seen as threatening more broadly. And so there's this really strong emphasis on the way that these women are seen as deviating from the norm of femininity, either by being working class, by being uh, unwell in other ways, like mentally ill, physically unwell, um, women who work, uh, writers, things like that. This really interesting kind of desire to present them as outside the norm. And I think that that is kind of part of our cultural kind of conception of criminality, Mm that does come from the 20th century is this idea that that any kind of act of crime must be rooted in some sort of deviance. And our modern consequence of that is to draw these parallels between ideas of, of sexual... Um, I hate the word deviance so much. Non-heteronormative sexuality. Non-heteronormativity, exactly, is this idea of any kind of variation within your life, any kind of alteration from the perfect cishet norm must be somehow connected to these other ways of being an outsider and that's a racialized thing as well as a gendered thing and as well as something that's connected to sexuality and so the consequence of that today is that all of our murder girl films were about (laughs) lesbians that is such an interesting way to think about it yeah and, and to think about how it's almost necessary for this narrative for everyone in the film and in the book to be like a deviant at some level. You know, Selena Selena is yeah. different. Her mind is portrayed as being kind of literally on a different plane. Uh, Ruth is sort of gender, gender fluid or gender non-conforming. She kind of is crossing a boundary in that way. Margaret is this sort of first of all she is a lesbian but she's also this kind of like pseudo addict someone with mental health issues someone who's like not Mm. entirely present in her reality and it sort of places them all on this kind of like highly institutionalized um map of the prison so that they all revolve around each other that is a really really interesting way to think about it mrs jelf deviates as well in the sense that she's Mm. kind of grieving and she's overcome by this sense of loss and grief and that's what makes and she's a mother without a child which is very very stigmatized in our society and arguably even more so in victorian society Mm. and so yeah this idea that that in order to kind of prevent ourselves from being terrified of crime we have to prevent present every act of violence every kind of criminal act as something that 
violates our norms and and breaks with society and it's always very much about presenting these things as in isolation rather than recognizing the way that they are a product of society at large and this is i mean this is something that we keep coming back to with our murder girl episodes it's also something that we keep coming back Mm. to with ripper watch as well is the way that that crime is always a reflection of the society in which it is committed but culturally we are unable to accept that. It fosters a very dangerous assumption, which is that crime and, and violation are things which happen to other people and are perpetrated by other people, when in reality, unfortunately, we know that it's usually the people who are either closest to us or read as the most normative of all that slip under the radar and have a greater proportion of risk to people. Completely. And and I think that is something that the book handles really well with the way that Selena is represented and also the way that Ruth is represented as these kind of cuckoos, right? That they come in under false pretenses and they they seduce you, they make you feel at ease within your own home and, and that the violence happens within the home is really interesting, but you don't get that in the film. You don't see much of Ruth's presence in the house, you don't really see much of Selena's presence in Mrs. Brink's house, you don't get the same kind of sense of cuckooism um, that that is really present in the book and, and that's a loss to the plot. Yeah. I think once again we need to make our own our own <laughs> 12 episode series. Oh my god. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I have so many opinions about these things and all I want is to be all I want is to be in a writer's room. <laughs> um, Shall we talk about the actual, like, the film itself? The actors, the direction, that sort of thing. I would say um, one thing that was very funny to me is that it immediately felt so dated um, with this particular sort of 2000s grainy, slow motion shaky cam kind of aesthetic that I really associate with costume dramas of the 2000s. There's a little bit of it in Desperate Romantics. There's a lot of it in things like Bleak House. Um, There's quite a bit in Tipping the Velvet, which is from, I think, 2002 or three. It's very much the kind of like BBC ITV Sunday night drama of my childhood and teens. And it's such a throwback. It really is. And um, looking at the sort of um, background information for this film I was very entertained uh, to realise that the screenplay was written by Andrew Davies who is best known for writing the 1995 Pride and Prejudice and has his writerly hands in pretty much all of the heritage dramas that were produced for TV around this era um, which is really interesting because it is like this incredibly dark and gothic subject matter, which is not very much in the sort of stately home Austin wheelhouse at all. No, but then just having looked him up, he did also do the 2005 Bleak House, which is very much the kind of goth end of costume yeah. drama yeah, at this time. For sure. And is an amazing, amazing adaptation, but has all of the same kind of aesthetic tropes as I think it would be fair to say that this is probably the most 2008-2008 costume drama that you could produce. It's like a really interesting symbol to me of like how the readability of um, on-screen camera work has changed over time. Because you were saying like, you associate that shaky cam, slow-mo... Uh, a sudden moving camera style with 
the 2000s period drama. But for me, I associate it with The Office and Succession and these moments where the camera sort of homes in on the face of the character. To me, that visually heralds a comedic moment. So when I was watching this film, Mm. I was repeatedly kind of taken out of the drama because you experience this kind of like shaky shift to Margaret's face or Selena's face with that sudden zoom. And it's supposed to be really emotive, but because I've watched The Office and watched Succession, I feel this surreal urge to laugh. (laughs) Right. Yeah, that is so interesting because, yeah, it makes me feel like I am watching it with my mum. <laughs> it's it's so funny. Yeah, the aesthetics of this are incredibly 2000s, but the way that those kind of techniques and approaches have shifted is, yeah, incredibly funny. And I know I know what you mean. I've seen enough of Succession to know exactly what you're talking about. I think that this, this would have, and I cannot believe I'm saying this, this would have benefited from more interesting sound design. <laughs> You are our in-house sound, sound design, design enthusiast. Obsessive. I am our in-house sound design hater. Yeah, I know. It's Well, I was actually thinking this because you know that this is my hobby horse and I love it. And I talk about it in every episode, but I want to be immersed in historical time as much as possible. And I think that sound is the best way to do this. The sound of this film was so boring. <laughs> oh my God, it was so boring. There's only two memorable moments of sound design that I can really think of at all. One is literally a ticking clock to signify the passage of time in the course of one night. Groundbreaking stuff. And the other is like the sort of use of um, hands banging on prison bars and background screaming, which is incredibly kind of generic evocation of prison life. But these are like large echoing spaces juxtaposed with uh, dense sound absorbent spaces you know wide open Mm -hmm. streets and then tightly cramped together cells long echoing corridors and like densely covered um overly decorated victorian interiors there was so much opportunity here for like really fun beautiful sound design but you know they weren't yeah. giving the Foley artists their due, and I think that's sad. They could have... Filmmakers everywhere, pour more money into Foley so I can be happy and Alice can be mad. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's the thing, is that like normally I'm a bit... I don't like it when it's too obtrusive, but in this case it was just so completely fucking Yeah, absent it was bland. That even I noticed how bland absent it was. Bland and redundant, which is a real shame. And... And, you know, this is a book where um, Margaret does experience kind of auditory yeah. hallucinations. I watch this with the subtitles on because mm. I always do that. And there are references in the subtitles to ghostly mm. murmurings, but there aren't actually any in the sound design. And it just kind of sucks. Like, it, it, it could have done so much more to create this kind of rising tension, this sense of uncertainty. The fact that Margaret has no idea what's going on for most of the book and she knows that there are things that are happening that are beyond her understanding but she thinks that's a spiritual thing where actually she's being conned and it would have been so interesting to do something with that like aesthetically stylistically auditorially 
fucking anything <laughs> to make it more interesting. Especially because, again, we talked about this with the visuals, but also another way of conveying that intense inner life which you get from Sarah Waters' prose would be to work with the sound and and think about the kind of like the audible components. There's one moment, I think, where they, they do a kind of nice crossfade. So you have prison screaming, obnoxious posh person dinner party laughter. And it's just, it's kind of like a blink and you'll miss it moment. Like it's not done excitingly or, you know, with any kind of real punch and impact. But if they had leaned into like those sorts of things and as you say, like actually made something of the breathing, the tapping, all of the little sounds of mediumship, all of the little sounds of sort of like inner thought that could have been really exciting. But it was just bland, unfortunately. Yeah. And I, so whenever we watch anything for this show, I make like pages and pages and pages of notes because I like to write down all of my thoughts. I have made like less than two full pages for this. And I love this book. I love Sarah Waters. It is the first Sarah Waters that I've read. It was quite a revelation to me to read it. And, you know, I have very fond feelings for this book. And I'm just really annoyed. Mm. I'm just really annoyed. They haven't given Sarah Waters... They have not given Sarah Waters' work the... The the due it respects, the respect that it should garner. Because, like, I love Sarah Waters' work. Within the field of neo-Victorianism, the criticism that she sometimes gets is that the format for her novels is too emulatory of someone like Charles Dickens. Which, you know, you could argue back and forth about that. But... If you are to adapt for TV some kind of um, Dickens novel, for example, those adaptations give huge weight to the density of that fiction. All the different characters, all the different layers, all the different strata of society. Yeah, there's like a real reverence exactly. for the Exactly. And she deserves that If you that compare too. that to Affinity, which honestly is, is pretty light, it's pretty surface level, there isn't that density, there isn't that complexity. And I can think of so many adaptations, like both for film and TV, that have done that with Dickens, for example, really, really well. And you could have done the yeah. exact same thing for this novel, but it just doesn't hit, does it? No. Um, I think Anna Madley does a pretty decent job of Margaret Pryor, given that Margaret's main character trait is just sort of like looking confused and cold and pursed up. Yeah, exactly. It's Zoe Tapper, your fave. <laughs> My girl. Plays Selena Dawes. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm obsessed with the trajectory of Zoe Tapper's career from the period of about 2005 to 2010, because there's not a single period drama in which she was not placed. I think directors in this time period and and casting directors had an obsession with this particular actor's ability to be simultaneously very pure and soft-spoken and and have this very gentle affect and pair that with something that was quite inherently kind of sexual or suggestive. I don't know. And I, I want to be respectful to the actress and you know, not say that this is something which is inherently a trait that she has, but it's fascinating that she repeatedly plays this type of character simultaneously pure and sexy over and over again. 
Um, she also was cast in um, our favourite Desperate Romantics as uh, Effie Gray. And again, pure and, pure sexual, and simultaneously. sexual simultaneously. And she was cast in um, a show that I don't know if anyone but me remembers called Demons, which was an ITV joint, where she played um, a vampiric rendition of Mina Harker, um, pure and sexy simultaneously, uh, and also kind of strangely sexualized portrayal of blindness that um, was quite fascinating. Mm. But this was Zoe Tapper's time and she was uh, riding that wave for all she was worth and, and God bless. Apparently, and I did not know about this until I was looking at her Wikipedia, there is a 2006 Channel 4 film based on a harlot's <laughs> progress in which she plays the titular harlot, <laughs> which is, again, incredible. Um, I realised in watching this that I sometimes get her confused with Keely yes. Hawes. This was also Keely Hawes' time for very similar reasons. Because they have a similar vibe and, and I think that, I, I know that they're different people but I can never remember which one of them has yes. been in what. And yeah, it, it, there was a moment for the sort of like waif-like gamine blonde girls in the 2000s and they, they made it work for them. Um, yeah, God bless Zoe Tapper. Yes, Hope she's doing well. She worked that uh, short sting style wig with all the grace God gave her. <laughs> Is there anything we've um, missed? The opportunity to watch a better film. <laughs> oh my God! I know, right? I I would recommend the book. Mm. I wouldn't recommend the film. And I think actually now, if you've listened to this whole episode having not read the book, you won't actually enjoy the book because we've spoiled it for you. <laughs> so enjoy uh, reading that with full foreknowledge of the twist, you guys. Yeah, sorry. Um, I think that actually this is a great example for why. I mean, I, and again, I wonder what we would have thought of this had we mm. not known the book. Um, because I think that Sarah Waters is really one of those authors where if you know any of the twists, mm. you're fucked. You cannot be spoiled for her work or it, it it's still good. It's still very evocative and very atmospheric, but it just loses yeah. some of its zip. It's kind of like um, if you were to read Wilkie Collins' The Moonstone or something with full foreknowledge of that twist, you know, like... It, mm. you still enjoy the experience but there's something about the kind of visceral thrill of it that goes missing I suppose. However, on the other hand, given that we've talked so much about Margaret's inner life, you can very much go back to the book and, and enjoy the kind of intricate ins and outs of that whilst reading it. So there's some there's something for everyone yeah. on historical friction. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and you get you do get a lot more of Margaret in the book. You get a lot more of this kind of like queer displacement. You get a lot more really interesting insight into the way that she is sort of approaching desire and sexuality. And I think it's a great example of Sarah Waters just being a solid historian as well yeah, as a really absolutely. Good writer. Um, she uh, has a PhD in something Victorianist. I can't remember what, and it definitely comes across in, in everything she writes. She is a knockout researcher as well as a fantastic writer. Yeah, huge, 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 huge fan of Sarah Waters. I love her so much, um, and I think that she is one of very few authors that absolutely strikes the balance of like atmosphere and accuracy consistently you are kind of swept into the world of her writing 
and you never feel like you're doing homework. Yeah, a completely immersive world. With that, I think we should probably call it a day. I'm very excited for our Zoe Tapper season. <laughs> the full season of Zoe Tapper. Oh my God, can we make that happen? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm also excited for our series of disappointing Sarah Waters adaptations because I've heard that the adaptation of The Night Watch is a fucking shit show. Um, and they cast... Is it Anna Maxwell Martin pretending to be Butch? Fantastic. And it's devastating. Uh, so, yeah, I think we'll have to continue both our adoration of Zoe Tapper and also our love of Sarah Waters and hatred. Have of we adaptation. struck a happy medium? <laughs> oh my God. That's it's it. It's so <laughs> <We're> done. 